Good morning. We'll see if this turns on. <clears throat> the battery pack is, says it's on. I have no idea. It doesn't. It just has numbers. You know, I'll, I'll push the. Oh, there we go. Whoa! I'm going to preach from way back there. User error, this user. Sorry about that. Good morning. It is good to be with you again. Again, I bring you greetings from around our region, 115 other congregations in Iowa, Minnesota, and the Dakotas, and 200 colleagues in ministry, some of which are also in this room today, and we're blessed by that. Uh, It's good to join you this day as you're on your summer road trip talking about national parks. Of course, this will be a slightly different Uh, approach to that, and I hope it is appreciated. If not, I do think it is a worthwhile one on this day of all days, the 4th of July, when we have other things on our hearts and minds, too, at least many of us. But before we dig into the scripture and the park, would you join me for a moment of prayer? Gracious God, we give you thanks for this time and this worship to open your scriptures and seek your wisdom and guidance for our lives. We ask that you open us up Open our minds, open our ears, open our hearts to the lessons that you have for us this day. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So our story from the scriptures comes from the book of Joshua. It's the moment when, well, right after the Hebrew people entered the promised land. And one of the things they did was they crossed the Jordan River, much like they had the Red Sea, on dry ground. God stilled the waters. And it says that Joshua had stones that were placed in the on the dry riverbed alongside the ark and then they all crossed on dry ground and then those stones were moved to the shore of the river and stacked up so that and that's where our reading began this morning so that in future years kids especially children would see those stones stacked there and know that that was not natural and ask why are these stones here and they'd be told well this was the place where our people crossed the Jordan because God stilled the waters and we crossed on dry land. But more than that, the story is bigger than that. Just like God had at the Red Sea. And just like God had brought us, our ancestors, out of slavery in Egypt. And so the whole point of this memorial beside the River Jordan was to inspire questions. Two basic answers. One, what specifically happened here? But in a larger sense, what does it mean? If I were to ask it or answer in a different way, the answers that the people of God were supposed to give when children or others asked the question was who they were and whose they were. God's people. God's people brought into this land at this place. I mean, this was kind of the first moment of the Exodus where the Hebrews could leave a lasting mark, right? When they were brought out of slavery, they were in a hurry. They, they ran out of Egypt, right? They didn't, they, they didn't take anything except for the jewelry that the Egyptians threw at them, saying, get out of here. Take whatever you want and leave. You don't remember that part of the Bible story. I, I swear it is there. <laughs> I am not making that up. That's where the stuff comes for for the golden calf. Anyway, um, so they don't leave a mark. They run. 
Then the Egyptians decide maybe that wasn't such a good idea to let their workforce leave. And so they chase after them and they get to the Red Sea. Still running. And God brings them through the waters of the Red Sea on dry land and they get to the other side. And while they're safe, I'm not entirely sure they quite believe it. So they keep moving. They don't leave a lasting memorial there. Out of slavery, there is a memorial of them being freed from slavery. It's still exists today in Jewish culture. Do you know what it is? It's a holiday. Passover. The Passover and the Passover Seder is the great memorial to them coming out of Egypt. And presumably they even celebrated that while they're in the wilderness to the extent they could. And certainly when they entered the promised land. And the Red Sea, there's a memorial to that too, but it's not in stone, etched in stone or anything, but it is in the Bible. It's a song. We know it as the Song of Miriam. In fact, Bible scholars suggest it might be the oldest thing in the Bible. That song that commemorates the passing on dry ground through the Red Sea and the defeat of the Egyptian pursuers. But then they get to enter into God's promised land after 40 years in the wilderness and they set up this memorial, these rocks, these 12 stones to mark the place where they had entered the promised land. I hope... I hope that this has some echoes for this day, right? It's kind of what we do on July 4th. There'll be fireworks and there have been parades this weekend and there'll be cookouts. And my family, we always had homemade ice cream on the 4th of July. Though that may owe to the fact that my father's birthday is the 4th of July and he loves homemade ice cream more than the holiday. I'm not sure if which we did it for, but... I'm not saying, no, I said that wrong. I don't know if he loves ice cream more than the holiday. But we may have done it more because it was his birthday and he loves it rather than it was the 4th of July. There are all these traditions, right? And hopefully, eventually, young people ask us, well, why are we doing stuff today? And we tell them. And we remind ourselves that, gosh, if I were to count now, 246 years ago, 12 score and 6 years ago on this date something happened and it's a part of who we are and as some of our music has reminded us this morning a part of whose we are and so we tell that story this day and maybe more than this day that's not the only reason that I chose Gettysburg this morning there are more than 400 sites in the National Park Service or at least under their care 62 of them are officially national parks. So you can do the math. That means a whole lot more are not national parks. There are other things. There are national seashores. There are national monuments. There are national historic sites. And there are a handful, like Gettysburg, that are known as national military parks. I chose Gettysburg because it's the one I'm, out of all 400 plus of those sites, that I'm the most familiar with. And I thought it'd be better I preached on something I had some experience with rather than something something I'd only seen pictures of. But more than that, Gettysburg ties into the 4th of July as well. Of course, you probably know about Gettysburg not because of the battle so much, but because of a speech that was given there November 19th 1863, known as the Gettysburg Address, which you probably read in school. Maybe even some of you memorized it when you were in school four score and seven years ago. 
Well, fourscore and seven years to the day after July 4th, 1776, was a momentous date in the American Civil War. It was basically the turning date of that war. A Confederate army in Vicksburg, Mississippi, that had been besieged for 47 days, surrendered to a Union army, allowing the Union Navy to have full control of the Mississippi River, effectively splitting that, the southern states in half. They surrendered to a general named Ulysses Grant, who you may have heard of and set in motion while Grant becoming general of all the Union armies. The other turning point happened several hundred miles to the northeast. Larger armies, one Confederate, one Union, were about a mile apart on two ridges south of a town called Gettysburg in Pennsylvania. Not much fighting happened on that July 4th. Instead, there was a council of war, and the Confederate general and his other generals decided to withdraw because the previous three days there had been very bloody fighting with 50,000 casualties. If you don't know military parlance, casualty is somebody wounded, killed, captured, or missing after a battle. 50,000 was the number of casualties out of some 180,000 Soldiers who fought July 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. Needless to say, a lot of those soldiers who survived the battle never forgot it. And they too believed, both North and South, by the way, believed it was the turning point of the war. And many of them, after the war, would go back. They'd take their families. And eventually, they started stacking stones too. But I'm getting ahead of myself. How many of you been, have been to Gettysburg? Okay, so I'm, I'm guessing this is about 20 to 25% of us. So for those of you who have been there, give me three minutes. For those of you who haven't, so you drive to Gettysburg, I'm going to assume you're going to drive from the south. And you're going to see the sign that points you off of uh, Pennsylvania Route 15. And you're going to... Go to the visitor center. A new visitor center. It's about 15 years old. Beautiful, large, spacious. In the middle of the battlefield, in the middle of a frankly empty part of the battlefield, that's why they put it there with massive parking lots. And you'll go in and you'll get the obligatory national park map so you can find your way around the battlefield. And maybe you'll spend the money and you'll go in the museum. You'll see the introductory film. Every national park site has one of those. This one's about 20 minutes long. It's very good. Then you'll go up some escalators, because that's the only way out of the theater. And you'll see one of the first memorials, a traveling memorial to the Battle of Gettysburg, something known as a cyclorama, which is a 360-degree painting that was painted in the 1870s and 1880s and then traveled all across the United States for people to stand within and kind of understand what happened at Gettysburg. It depicts the climactic third day of the battle known to history as Pickett's Charge. So you'll go up there and there'll be somebody who kind of points you around some of what the painting shows and then you'll have a few minutes to look. Then you leave at your own pace, but within a 20-minute mark so that the next group of movie watchers can come up and see the painting as well. And then you'll go out onto the battlefield. 
You can take your map and go out, or you can hire a trained guide trained by the Na- and licensed by the National Park Service. If you've never been there before, I highly recommend it. It's a little pricey, but they're all very good. You can also go through town and get a cheaper option. They're not always as good. I've overheard bits of their spiel, and some of them need to do a little more history work before they take people out on tours. <laughs> anyway. And then you'll go out on the battlefield. You'll follow the driving tour. Let's see if I can figure out where this is on the battlefield. Uh, yeah, this is actually, I think, close to where you'll start. I think this is the first day. I think so. You don't get too far on the battlefield, though, and you start noticing monuments everywhere. Everywhere. There are markers and there are signs and there are cannon that show artillery positions everywhere on the battlefield. The National Park Service says there are more than 3,000 markers and interpretive signs on the Gettysburg battlefield. Most of them purchased and placed there by the units who fought there or the states that sent soldiers there. And all of which want to remind you what happened there. The Park Service's job is to help you understand on a larger scale what happened there. But each of these monuments is to help you understand on a smaller scale through the eyes of the soldiers what happened on different places of that very large field. Park Service says it will take you two and a half to three hours to get a good overview of the field and drive around. The first time I was there, it took me six, and by the last three, I was rushing. So depending on your interest in history, two and a half hours may be more than enough or may not be nearly enough. Complicating all this, by the way, not only are there all these unit memorials, there are three generations of Park Service signs (laughs) telling you what happened on the battlefield. And once they put one up, for some reason, they don't take it down. They just leave these generations of signs. So you can get three different viewpoints of what happened in the battle. One that dates to just after World War II, and one that dates to roughly the 70s, and one that's about 2000. They're different styles of signs. The oldest ones are in metal. Uh, some, of them, some of them large bronze plaques that are on big, literally, rocks. There's plenty of rocks in southern Pennsylvania for them to, <laughs> to put these signs on. I can't remember off the top of my head what the middle ones look like. And then the end ones are the more modern ones if you've been to any kind of historic site. The ones that have the slightly, what, 60-degree angled metal rods on the sides and then the sign in the middle. To help you understand what happened here. And try to understand what it means. Why is this park, why is this land set aside? And what is the story we're to understand? I point out all the different monuments, all the different markers, because here's the thing about Gettysburg. The story is not consistent. Lots of stories are being told at Gettysburg National Military Park. Lots of them. Some of them fit together okay, and some of them are pretty contradictory. 
after the first few years uh, committee, God loves a committee, right? Uh, A committee had to be established to help the different military units decide where to place their monuments because they were placing them haphazardly all over the battlefield. And by, at this time, the government didn't own it. They were just placing them on people's farmland because they said, this is where it happened. And so they got a group of people from Gettysburg to bring some order. And now we know that the general positions of all these monuments is the furthest forward that a unit fought during the battle. In general, that means that there are a lot of Confederate monuments on that large ridge, one mile, apart from a large number of Union monuments on another ridge, a mile to the east. Except for where Pickett's Charge came through. There are 15 stops if you take the auto tour on the Gettysburg uh, Park. Number 13, I think it is, is known as the high water mark of the Confederacy. So amidst all of these markers of Union uh, infantry units and artillery units and corps honoring soldiers and commanders and generals behind a fence so it's not defaced, and some trees, the cops of trees, if you've ever seen the movie Gettysburg. There's an open book monument known as the high water mark of the Confederacy because much like Faulkner wrote, that was the point at which everything changed for the South. At the end of the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, the Confederacy was doomed to fail. That's a different historical conversation we can have later. But that is the story that is told. And it's literally told in stone on the Gettysburg battlefield. That's a few stops past, I believe, stop three, which is an eternal flame memorial commemorating the peace and reconciliation between North and South that was put up the 75th anniversary of the battle dedicated by President Roosevelt and others and a handful of veterans still alive in their 90s (laughs) met and shook hands over a ceremonial picket fence, no not picket fence, uh, rail fence to show that reunion that the brothers who fought against brothers were now reconciled. That's a different story too. I bring up Gettysburg because there's so many stories and they're so obvious. But here's the thing. Anything that's set apart like this is meant to tell a story. All 400 units of the National Park Service are meant to tell us a story. A story about why this land is special. Either what happened here or what it represents. And what it means for you and me who are Americans... What it means on our behalf to the world as a whole. And for Christians, what it means to be part of God's people living in this land at this time. Where we've come from, who we are, and I imagine who we hope to be in the future. And if you're like most people, you don't go to a park by yourself. You take others, perhaps your kids, 
your grandkids, your nieces, your nephews, and you tell them the story of what happened here and why this land is set apart and why it's important and what it means for them. So today on the 4th of July, I hope we remember and recognize at least some of these stories that are floating around today. But as you've been on this road trip and you continue on this road trip, there's some other uh, majestic national parks. I hope you ask yourself, because I'm told storytelling is a big part of the sabbatical season, what story is being told to us through this land that has been set aside? What does it mean for who we are? What does it mean for whose we are? Enough for today. I always said that because I got to preach next Sunday, but I don't get to preach for you next Sunday. But I'm sure somebody else will pick up the story next week in a very meaningful and faithful way. Amen.